Today, as a follow-up to our conversation with cancer survivor Biff Naked, we'll be discussing breast cancer. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Normally, every episode I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. This past month was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So last episode, we did the entertainment part with an interview with musician Biff Naked. And she's herself a breast cancer survivor. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive into breast cancer itself. Now, Ali, before we get started, I'm going to do a little journalistic integrity? No. I'm going to do a little bit of journalistic oh, flair Sounds here. very promising already. I'm going <laughs> to... That's right. It's already <laughs> ruined. I'm going to use some journalistic flair. I'm not a journalist and I don't play one on television. Last episode, Biff talked about something. She was talking about working on her new album and she was getting ready to release it in 2020. And mm-hmm. then... She said, you know, with the pandemic and Black Lives Matter, I just felt that nobody really wanted to hear this. And then offline, you were talking to Biff and you said you felt the exact same way about your kind of entertainment, your persona and your book. You want to just tell the listeners about that? Because we didn't include that in the episode, but I thought it was kind of interesting that you related to what she was saying. Yeah, now you've told people that we have offline conversations, and now everyone's going to want the behind the scenes, mm-hmm. the BTS mm-hmm. of Dr. versus Comedian. They feel left out, and you did that, Asif. Yeah, it just, look, she's a pretty phenomenal conversationalist, so it's like we, <laughs> I think Asif and I both didn't really want the interview to end, so we said thank you for your time, Biff, and we pressed stop, but we continued chatting and yeah, we probably should have had some of that in, but it's very hard to edit that in after the fact. But yeah, she and I connected on this issue. George Floyd was murdered in 2020. That put a real dent in my writing desire. And then in 2021, when I was really back into the swing of things, my friend Vikram died, our friend Vikram passed away and then my mom passed away. So these things will have an effect, but George Floyd in particular affected me in a similar way to Biff because I was just like, who wants to hear about the quote unquote struggle of a lower middle-class, middle-class brown kid from the South shore of Montreal when people are being murdered basically for the color of their skin. And, you know, there's this massive white supremacist system at work that is like, you know, just designed to keep black people down. Like why, who cares about my life? And I didn't even care about my life. My story doesn't matter. And my editor was very gracious and gave me some time, you know, extended some deadlines and said, just don't worry about that. You take your time and you see, let's connect in a month or so. But eventually he told me like, look, the reason that your book is important. And he's saying, I, and I do use the word important is because As much as people need to know about all the bad things that are going on in the world, people also need an outlet. People also need to laugh. They need to smile and they need to have something lighthearted to help them get through the tougher times. And that's why you should be writing this book. And and that's why it's my pleasure to be working with you on it. And those words were very comforting. I don't think I was able to jump right back into it right after he said it, but within a few weeks, I think I, I had to come to terms with the fact that 
I am doing something important as well. Cause I know how much comedy means to me, particularly throughout the pandemic when we were bored or sad or outraged, you know, for the sake of your mental health, we are predicated on the notion that laughter is the best medicine, even though you do not agree with that, Asif Doja. Yeah, I don't agree. As an alleged doctor, you say that that well, is not You're proven. the alleged doctor. But the, I'm the alleged. Sorry, right, I always yeah, get that mixed up. Yeah. So an unwritten rule of our show is that we actually don't really talk about COVID. We've done a few episodes on it, but we really don't talk about it because the whole point of this show is to talk about everything else in healthcare. There are other things in healthcare and everything else in the world with regards to comedy, entertainment, and things to get your mind off. Uh, yeah, off we figured things. if you wanted to get into COVID, you have many, many avenues that you can discover and we really didn't need to be that one. Yeah. Exactly right. And we talked to Biff, and she, of course, devoted a lot of her time, and she mentioned this in the last episode, to volunteering, helping out with, as she called them, rookie patients, new patients with newly diagnosed cancer. Mm -hmm. And of course, she's been heavily involved in breast cancer awareness and supporting uh, patients and her patient group from that time. So why don't we uh, get started with this deep dive into breast cancer? Now, this episode will be what I would call a buzzkill, but a very necessary buzzkill. And what I mean by that is I have a lot of questions for you, Asif, and you're going to mention who you spoke to to help, you know, this is not your area of expertise in medicine, but I know that what you spoke to her about is partly disheartening and partly like a little bit frightening, but also very, very necessary that all of us, men and women, and particularly women, we know about all of this. So I know that this is going to be a little bit of a tougher episode, but so, so necessary to know all the various warning signs and how common breast cancer is and what you need to know and what you can do. So I'm just going to say that off the top. So why don't we start with that? Before I get into the questions, who did you speak to for some professional support on this? Is that the right word? As you said, I'm not an expert on this topic, and it's a very large topic. I want to focus our conversation. So I spoke with friend of the show, Dr. Tulin Sill. Dr. Sill is the Gattuso Chair in Breast Surgical Oncology at the University Health Network in Toronto. She's an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto, an associate member of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto, and a staff surgical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center also in Toronto. And so what- I imagine uh, she's pretty busy. Yes, yes. And so I, I did reach out to Dr. Sill, and she gave me about eight main takeaways that she wanted me to address. So when we hear one of her takeaways, I'll just point out that this is one of the main points that Dr. Sill wanted us to mention on the podcast. Okay. So my first question is, how common is breast cancer? It is very common. And this is one of the things Dr. Sill wanted to impress upon people. It is the most common cancer diagnosed worldwide and the most common in women after non-melanoma skin cancer. So these are the less harmful type of cancers that people can get in their skin. So not including those is the most common in women. One in eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime. That's a huge number. I mean, what I really want to say is why, but I know... I know you doctors, you don't like that. Why? There's a big old, we don't know around the corner, I'm sure. So let me slowly get to that by first asking, so what are the symptoms? If, if one in eight women can get it, I think the next thing we should really focus on are, what are you looking for? 
what you need to be aware of for breast cancer? So one of the things that Dr. Sill wanted to impress upon us is it could present in many ways. So it's not just a lump, though you need to be aware of lumps, like a breast mass. Sometimes it's a mass underneath your armpit. That's called the axilla, and that's where you have some lymph nodes. So that's important too. But it can be other things. Uh, it can be a thickened area in the breast or skin that's pink or red, and that doesn't go away. Obviously, you can get an abrasion or like a pimple or something. That that's that's one thing. But if it keeps going and keeps progressing and it's not going away, that could be it. So any sort of change in the breast appearance or the area around the breast, you have to be very suspicious of. And we're talking about sort of more permanent or semi-permanent changes. Like if it's something that a lump that appears or swelling and then it goes away, that's not as... You'd be less worrisome. And so, okay. yeah, not going away is kind of the key. Obviously, women's breast size can change with their periods or if they're pregnant and things like that. So it's, it's kind of consistent things that have been going on for a while. And I think from the basic readings that I've done over the years, it's trending downwards in age, right? It used to be women older than 50 and or above 40, let's say, but it feels like there's young, you know, Biff was saying that she's, she was quite young. Mm -hmm. This is in 2009 at 34 or 36 who have gotten breast cancer. But is that more common now to have younger yeah. or more and yeah. more? Younger? Another key point to mention that Dr. Sill wants to mention is more younger women are getting breast cancer. So you don't assume like a new lump is like a cyst, which is kind of what you were getting at before. You need to get it checked. Usually breast cancer, again, occurs in women over 40 to 50 years of age, but 20% can occur in, age, in under age 50. So you have to be suspicious. Uh, the mean age of diagnosis of fatal breast cancer is 49, right? And breast cancer is the leading cause of death in women age 40 to 55. So when you think about that, you have to think of it, it's not really an older person's disease. When you talk about fatal breast cancer, is that because of people who didn't get it checked out and let it go too long and it, it you know, sort of progressed and advanced to an incurable phase? Or is there something that is simply a type of incurable breast cancer there is there is sometimes that if it's but it, but usually it's because it, as you're saying it spread already and it's too late by the time you identify it, it's too late and the key and, and we could talk about this a bit later when we talk about screening for breast cancer and some of the controversies that have occurred is if you're under age 50 as a woman and you don't think it's really possible this is really an older person's disease i'll worry about this in 10 years then you may not be checking yourself. You may not be getting checked. And of course, mammograms, again, we'll talk about screening for those. You may not be getting a mammogram. And then by the time you realize, oh, this could be me, I could have this, it may be too late for treatment because early breast cancer can be treated uh, quite successfully. Okay. That's a nice positive thing that you're saying there. Uh, tell me about the whys now. What are Who are the people at risk and, and why? So- the main thing is family history, and you can inherit genetic mutations, and we can talk a bit about these genetic mutations. So Angelina Jolie had this BRCA mutation, and we could talk about the steps that she did because of that. But if you have a strong family history, it's very important because that definitely increases your risk of getting breast cancer. So you have to ask and find out what, what your risk is. And you can get more screening and be eligible to more, for more screening, such as mammograms or MRIs, if you have a stronger family history. So definitely- That's interesting. So the system supports people who are more predisposed to breast cancer. Yeah, it definitely should. And so you have to be aware of that because if you don't know your family history, then suddenly you may not be one of these people who's eligible for this improved screening. And so 
definitely genetics is important. The other thing that's important is increasing age. So that is a risk factor as you get older. There's also things like history of radiation exposure to your chest. That that certainly could be put you at an increased risk. There are some things that are quite interesting that have to do with your hormonal and reproductive history. So the people who are at increased risk have a younger age at their first menstrual period, have never had children or had a low number of children, so perhaps only had one child. An older age when you first had your first baby, your first live birth, and an older age at menopause. So basically, one way I think about it, and I'm definitely oversimplifying, and I'm sure Dr. Sill would be unimpressed, the longer you've been exposed to hormones, like female hormones, like estrogen, without a break, because you would have a break from these hormonal fluctuations when you have a baby. When you have a child, sure. Or if you didn't have a child, then you're exposed to this for a longer period of time. That's the way I think about it. Hormone replacement therapy is another risk factor. And there are a few lifestyle factors as well. So an increased body mass index and alcohol use and tobacco use have been associated. Mm. Is there anything out there that we know that decreases the risk? There are a few things that have been implicated. So one is a high dietary fiber intake higher vitamin D level. So maybe vitamin D supplementation might help. Mm. And same thing with calcium as well, that that might help. And for those who may know, of course I know, but for those who don't, what do you mean that there are things that have been implicated? I know the word implications. What does it actually mean? Do you just mean there's no evidence? No, there is some evidence is what I'm trying to say. There is some evidence when I say implicated. It may not be something that's 100%, like if you do this, you will definitely get or not get breast cancer. So there is some suggestion. Often these are what are called observational studies. And sometimes that's the best we have if you can't randomize people. Like if you can randomize a huge amount of women into having a high dietary fiber intake and some to not, and then follow them over time to see who develops breast cancer, that's one way to do it. But it's very hard to do trials of that magnitude. So Mm -hmm. sometimes we do what's called observational studies. So those things that I just mentioned, the decreased risk have been noted in some observational studies. So I just want to go back to the genetics again, because it is important. We hear about it all the time, so it's probably good to go over this. So a family history, if you have a family history of breast cancer, you may detect patients who have these mutations. These are these BRCA genes, so BRCA1 or BRCA2, and they can be associated with an increased risk of breast ovarian and fallopian tube cancer. So you want to be aware of these. These are what are called tumor suppressor genes because when they're functioning normally, they control cancer cells. They suppress cancer cells. But if you have a mutation or an error in that gene, you can no longer control cancer growth. So you have uncontrolled growth and you're at risk for tumors. They're rare. They occur in about one in 500 people but you need to be aware of that. And you can inherit this gene from either your mother or your father. So you have to ask about both sides of the family history. And if you have a copy of this, there's about a 50% chance of passing it on to your child. So it's a 50% chance of getting that. So that's called autosomal dominance when you have this 50-50 chance of getting it, inheriting it. So if you have one of these gene mutations, you can have up to a 95% chance of developing breast cancer in your lifetime and more likely get it at a younger age, like before menopause type thing, and you at a higher risk of developing it in both breasts. And if you have it in one, of course, that's what I was saying, you could get it in the other one. And you could also develop ovarian cancer. So you can see why it's very, very important to address this family history. Mm -hmm. The other thing that 
one of my of a close friend who had breast cancer a few years ago, and I also messaged her and I said, anything you want me to get across to our audience about this, things that you think are important? And she mentioned a couple things, which I'll mention later, but she said dense breasts. And I didn't actually even know very much of what she's talking about. So the density of your breasts is very important. So breasts are made up of a couple things, Ali. Fat tissue, which gives their breasts their shape and size. Glandular tissue, which is the ducts and milk glands. Let's all remember, even though we sexualize breasts, their primary function is for nutrition for infants. And then there's fibrous tissue, which kind of supports everything, right? It's called connective tissue. But if you have, some women just will have more glandular and fibrous tissue than fatty tissue. So that increases the density of your breasts. And the problem is you can have this breast density, which you can see on the mammogram, but dense breast tissue, so you have two more of the glandular and fibrous tissue, it makes it harder to find cancer in the breasts. If you have dense breasts and you just note it after a mammogram, you should talk to your doctor about your risk of breast cancer because it could be missed by the mammogram. And so are there other things you can do? Should you have mammograms more often? What are the other ways to kind of detect breast cancer in those patients? So after your first mammogram, you want to know whether you have dense breasts or not. Very important. Okay. Because any growth or tumors can sort of hide in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, yeah, get, exactly, okay. exactly. All right. I wanted to talk about diagnosis and it's actually your wife who told me what at least one of these breast exams looks and feels like. And it's really, as a man, you should just stop complaining about anything at that point. I'm going to let you describe it, but your wife had described it to me, one of the tests. Yeah. Women who've had this done, they know exactly what I'm talking about, which is quite a few women who listen to our podcast. Basically, to do the mammogram, you have to compress the breast in order to get an adequate image. So it's like you're compressing it between two sheets of metal. And it is, again, I've never had it done, but apparently it is extremely painful and extremely uncomfortable. And remember, women are recommended to do this on a regular basis after a certain age. And so obviously it is uncomfortable. I think the key is that it's important to get done. Who knows, if, if men had to get this done yearly, would they have discovered a better way to do it? This is exactly your wife's suggestion. <laughs> yeah. She said, there is no way a man, somebody would come with a vice grip close to a man's testicle and they'd be like, no, let's invent something else. We're <laughs> That's not right. Even, we need to put all the money yeah. into that. Exactly. Yeah. So you'll have the mammogram. If they see something, they may do an ultrasound of the breast and the lymph nodes, again, usually around your armpit. And then depending on that, they often will have a biopsy and then they can look at the biopsy sample. Again, we talked to Biff Naked last week. If you read her book, she talks about getting the biopsy and how unbelievably excruciatingly painful that was. Again, sometimes we, we've talked in our podcast before about how when it comes to women's health, we often just kind of push aside their pain, right? So definitely things that can improve, but that's basically what it does. And then just so people are aware, the biopsy sample, so you take a sample of, of the area in question that you think could be a tumor and you look at it under a microscope, but you can do some other testing on it, which you guys might have heard of. It's this hormonal testing. So basically, these breast cancer cells have receptors for estrogen and progesterone, which are two hormones. And basically, by knowing the status of whether these receptors are present or not can give you some information about therapy you can do, prognosis. And there's also something called HER2 testing, H-E-R-2 
It's also called ERBB2. This is another gene that is found in about 15 to 20% of breast cancers. And so there are specific therapies that could be targeted to HER2 gene positive breast cancers. This is called what's called targeted therapy. And it has improved the care of breast cancer patients. So basically, it's very important to know when they do a sample, if you do have breast cancer, what their hormonal testing is. Do you have these receptors to estrogen and progesterone and what the HER2 status is? And when you do that, you can say, okay, I do targeted therapy. And again, that will help to improve survival in a lot of these patients. Right. So yeah, speaking of survival, let's talk about the prognosis and the treatment. You've mentioned a little bit about early detection obviously is the best, but generally, how does that work, the prognosis for breast cancer? If you have disease that's localized to the breast, the five-year survival is 99%. So you can see why finding it early, that's amazing. If it's regional spread, it's spread maybe to underneath your armpit, 85% five-year survival, which is also very good. But if you have distant spread, that's what we call metastases, Ali, right? When it's, that means cancer is spread to distant areas, 27% five-year survival. So it's a huge drop-off. There's other factors that are involved, which I'm not, I'm oversimplifying this immensely. And this is something that Dr. Sill does all the time in terms of staging this with her oncology colleagues. But we're, I'm just simplifying it quite a bit. The bottom line is, if it hasn't spread a lot, you have a very high chance of survival. If it's spread distantly, a very low chance, unfortunately, of survival. When is a mastectomy suggested? Yeah, so it depends a bit about the situation. Again, there's, as you guys probably know, who either had a personal or family member who's had cancer, there's a huge staging process, right? And they'll tell you your stage one or two or stage one A or two B or, right? There's so many different things. So it depends a bit about the stage. What they usually do is they look to see if it's localized just to the breast or, and they look to see if there's lymph node involvement. And then they also look at the hormone receptor status and the HER2 status. HER2 status. And then they can decide whether it may just be removal of the tumor or mastectomy. And then they also decide whether it would be radiation therapy, right? Or sometimes chemotherapy, depending on the stage of the cancer, plus maybe the hormonal therapy, plus maybe the targeted therapy. So there's many factors that would be involved in terms of whether you just remove the tumor or mastectomy, but it involves a lot of those things. Their gene status as well. If they're B, RCA positive, that's another factor to consider. So it depends a bit about the individual person. And there's risks and benefits to doing a mastectomy versus doing what we call like a lumpectomy. I'm not sure if that's the technical thing that they call it, but that's what they often call it on breast cancer websites and things like that. It's what Biff talked about in her book. So it depends a bit about the situation. Another thing that Dr. Sill wanted to talk about is these advances in care and the targeted therapies and these drug discoveries give people a lot of hope. If you had that HER2 positivity, those tumors actually have a very bad prognosis, but now that we have targeted therapies, it improves the prognosis. So there is a lot of hope for people, even if they have this breast cancer diagnosis. Okay. So technology is getting better, but also early detection is still your best defense or your best bet. All right. Anything else that out of the eight things that Dr. Sill said, anything left that we haven't touched on? Yeah. So that's a really good point because it kind of talks about the early detection. Okay. So let's, let's talk a bit about some of these. These are some hot button issues that have come up. 
So we said there's excellent survival, but patients need early detection. So Dr. Sill wants to reinforce how important it is to get your mammograms. Now you might have heard, Ali, there was a huge backlog of mammograms during COVID. So I'll link to this Globe and Mail article. So what they found is after the backlog or because of this backlog during COVID, doctors in Ontario, the province we live in, we're seeing more advanced cases of breast cancer because 400,000 fewer mammograms were performed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, they've caught up in terms of now they're back doing them more regularly, but because of this delay, again, if you weren't getting your mammogram and now you're finally getting it, you could be being diagnosed with a more advanced stage of cancer. I had no doubt that that was the case. My own mother was diagnosed with a stage four cancer for exactly these reasons. When we think about the tentacles of COVID and the pandemic, you know, they're so far reaching, we don't even know yet. I feel like we're just discovering on a regular basis what the implications were of that time. But certainly during the pandemic, I was very well aware of the backlog and my mother was complaining of all kinds of strange things, but there was just no getting to see a doctor. Yeah. And we should probably also talk about telemedicine at one point and the pros and cons of, of telemedicine and not examining your patients. There's a con and not examining them. Yeah. I have a couple of words for those doctors who think they're succeeding as uh, telemedical professionals. So maybe we'll do that in an upcoming episode because it is an important topic. So there's another issue to the screening concern, and this is my friend again who had breast cancer a couple of years ago. One thing she wanted us to mention was about dense breasts. The other one was about screening. She is a big advocate of changing the screening to age 40 rather than age 50, which is commonly the age of screening in Canada and the U.S., because like we talked about, it can increase survival and women under 50 have a worse prognosis. So you should change that. In fact, a recent study that came out of my university, the University of Ottawa, looked at about 55,000 women aged 40 to 59 who were diagnosed across breast cancer. And they found, they compared places that screened under age 40, because some provinces in the country screen under, uh, under age 50, I should say, and some of them don't. So provinces that screened women in their 40s diagnosed far more stage 1 breast cancer in women in their 40s than non-screening provinces and fewer stage 4 breast cancers. Basically, what they're saying is you are diagnosing more people at an earlier stage and giving them a better prognosis. Right. So you may as well push that downwards from 50 to 40. That that should be something we see soon. And more interestingly, there was an editorial by Dr. David Jacobs, who's a radiologist in Ontario, and he's the president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. And this editorial was in the National Post. Basically, there was a study years ago in Canada that basically did a randomized trial to see whether breast cancer screening was improved in patients 40 to 49. What happened was they did screen some patients and they didn't screen some patients and they saw no difference in the survival. But when they looked back and they really analyzed the studies, they saw that the research nurses who were enrolling people in the study, I think they had to examine them, okay? And if they thought there was a lump, they put them in the screening group as opposed to the non-screening group because they're like, well, you should really be examined for that. Do you know what I mean? So basically, they ruined the blinding of the trial by actually selecting people who should have just been randomized to one or the other. They're like, ah, I'm a bit worried this person has a lump. Okay, we'll put them in the screening. And of course, they were screened. So basically, 
a lot of people have criticized this program of only screening people over 50 because it's based on this flawed data. Data like the one I talked to you about from the University of Ottawa suggests that people under age 50 would benefit from screening. And in fact, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network in the US, which is a nonprofit group of cancer centers, has also just recommended that annual screening start at age 40. If you're at average risk, but if you're high risk, as Dr. Sill was talking about, as in your lifetime risk is more than 20%, they recommend screening mammograms as early as 30 or breast MRI starting as early as 25. And if you have dense breasts, which we talked about before, you should have a breast MRI as well as a mammogram. Just before we wrap up, you did mention Angelina Jolie earlier. That's sort of one of the more famous mastectomies that we would know about. What about the one she had? Do you have any information on that? Right. So she had this bilateral prophylactic mastectomy because she had this family history of the BRCA gene. And so she did it preemptively correct. before she yeah. did it. Okay. Basically, what you people who have this gene, you can have the choice when you're having your initial, say, mastectomy to do a contralateral, so opposite side prophylactic mastectomy, which can help lower your risk of developing a second breast cancer. So this basically is really for those women who have this BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene or a very strong family history. And a strong family history would mean having a mother, sister, or daughter diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer or breast cancer before age 50, or having multiple family members with either breast or ovarian cancer. So even if you don't have that gene, people couldn't get tested for it, you would still consider that a strong family history. And then once you finished having children, they recommend a lot of these women consider getting their ovaries and the fallopian tubes removed as well to decrease their risk of having ovarian cancer. Is that a hysterectomy? Hysterectomy involves the uterus being removed. This would just be the ovaries and fallopian tubes. Oh. Yeah. So I guess kind of similar, but you still have a uterus. So it's something that people think about. Again, this goes back to what Dr. Sill was talking about. You need to know your family history. And it was a bit difficult for, for Biff because she didn't know her family history because she's, she mentioned she was adopted. So that was a bit more difficult. And the decision-making was a bit tougher, I think, for her if you, if you read her memoir. So you have to know your family history because that's going to directly impact your risk. So that was our episode part two of our series on breast cancer. Last episode was the entertainment part with Biff Naked. And then today talking about breast cancer itself. Let us know what you guys thought. Anything we missed, anything you want us to talk about. There are other topics to speak about. Breast cancer in men is another issue that we should probably address at some point. Again, we talked about some peripheral things that came up. Telemedicine, telehealth, telephone consults with physicians. I'm curious what people think about those. So reach out to us. Dr. V Comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Dr. V Comedian at gmail.com. And Ali, I got a new announcement for us. We're I know on what another it is. social media. Say it. Yes, on TikTok now. Yes, we are on TikTok. We'll see how it goes, but we've uploaded a few videos. Usually it's our interviews so far that we'll try and put some with uh, with me and just me and Ali. So we have, uh, I've put already up, you'll see our interviews with Biff Naked, Sydney McElroy, and uh, I'll try and put some with friend of the show, Dr. Glaucom Flecken. Yeah, I mean, 
The truth is, and, and I'm very happy to say this, we have some phenomenal guests. We really have some great guests who are so passionate about the work they do and it behooves us to get sort of their voice, their image, their message out. And if us being on TikTok does it, then it's good for everybody. How often I'll be checking that TikTok account, I'm going to keep that to myself, but it'll be close to never. I got too much stuff. I got too much stuff. Our next episode is actually related. We are going to be talking about Twitter. Hot stuff. Hot stuff right now, Twitter. Not necessarily the good hot at all. So stay tuned for that. That is our next episode. Besides that, a huge thank you to everybody who has bought my memoir. Is There Bacon in Heaven is doing quite well. It was announced by Indigo Chapters here in Canada that it is one of the top 100 books of the year which means it'll be pushed quite a bit throughout November and, and December for, for, for Christmas gifts. And, and there's no ranking, right? They, it's not like you were number 62 or number 12, right? They don't rank them. It's just take 100 books. This is They don't. They don't. <laughs> but if they did, this would be a horrible question on your part. <laughs> yes, us, if I was 99.3, I was, I was tied with three other books at 99. No, there's no ranking. And uh, why would you even ask that? It is in the top 100. Let me have my moment you bastard and let's celebrate well on that note please remember that although i'm a doctor i'm not your doctor medical issues we talk about it for your interest and information only and they're not medical advice please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice thanks for listening bye